So welcome to RUF. Tonight, we come to one of those passages where, as a preacher, honestly, you're like, what am I going to say here? Uh, it's a familiar story. We're in 2 Samuel 11. There are two names that are inseparable from the biblical character David. And people who are not Christian or Jewish but have any cursory knowledge of the Bible and who King David is or was know those two names. The first one we already looked at was Goliath. We looked at that at the beginning of the semester. Tonight, we look at that second name, not so famous, more like infamous, Bathsheba. Right? This story is unsettling because it's a made-for-salacious-TV type of scene here. It's unsettling. It's not unsettling just because it's a story of raw lusts and the dangers and the consequences that that reaps um, in many lives. It's not unsettling just because it's about some illicit affair. It's unsettling because it's about the hero of the story. And there is absolutely nothing flattering about him here. Actually, quite the opposite. Not only is it the hero of the story, it's the king. Not only is it the king, it is God's king. Not only is it God's king, it is the man anointed by God, the man after God's own heart. And in this story, we will see him seeing, desiring, coveting, taking, objectifying, deceiving, plotting, and even murdering. What do you do with a story like that? Ralph Davis, a commentator, he says this. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see here is the one who puts Mephibosheth at his table and Uriah in his grave. What are we going to do with that? Let's read this together. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go to his own house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and to drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence, and he drank. 
so that he made him drunk. In the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back for him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men in the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we look into it. Father, this is uh, indeed a tough story, a tough thing for us to swallow that a man after your own heart, a man who has so beautifully shown us the true king that we need in Jesus, now shows us some of the ugliest that we've seen even in ourselves. We don't know what to do with it. We pray that you, Father, would comfort us where we're afflicted. Father, that you would afflict us where we're comfortable. As only you can through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What are we going to do with this villainous hero? (laughs) What are we going to do with this villainous hero. I got three things there for you. The first one is this, the setting of the sin, the setting of the sin, the setting of what happens here, because we've read the last few chapters of David being the king and everything going well and God making this promise to David and David understanding God's grace, David showing God's grace to Mephibosheth. And then now It's as if none of it ever happened. The story moves quickly into the details, but verses 1 and 2 give us the setting. David's no longer the runt shepherd boy. He's the king. He's powerful. He's confident. He's defeated nearly every single enemy of his kingdom. He's been walking with and loving God for 20 plus years. Up to this point, from a storytelling standpoint, David has been near flawless. 
He's been almost everything that we want and need in a king. He's shown us what faithfulness to God is like. He's shown how life-giving that can be. He's shown us how life-giving that can be even in dark circumstances. He's shown us what it's like to receive grace. He's shown us what it's like to bestow that grace on other people. David, a man after God's own heart, sits now on his couch on a roof, content and secure and at peace. Everything is going well. And that is precisely where it all falls apart. What do we do with that? It's there at this moment that from what we can tell, David is actually at his most vulnerable It's here at the pinnacle of his kingship that David makes a royal mess of his life, the life of his family, and the life of his kingdom because of his sin. This chapter marks, as one commentator said, the beginning of an avalanche of calamity in David's life. From this point on, David is going to be a flawed character who seems helpless to reverse the tide of sin and destruction that he has unleashed here. Okay? And again, this is not what we would have expected, okay? We could have seen this coming earlier in the story, right? When young David is like kind of getting out there and people are throwing spears at him and he's running for his life. That would make sense when he makes a mistake. But we get to this point in the story and we think, what in the world? How could it all go so wrong here? How could, you know, we see the runt shepherd boy come out and out of nowhere slays the giant. But then we see the powerful, secure, full of grace, King David, and he falls. And he falls hard, and he falls fast. And as far as the setting goes, as where he is as a person, what I suggest to you is, what if that's the point? What if that's the point? It actually is where he is. Kind of being up on the roof is kind of a a symbolism there that he's on top of the world and that is where he falls. And what if that's the point? How could that be the point? What if the Christian life really is upside down? What if the pathway to glory for the Christian really is through suffering? What if the way to the promised land really is through the wilderness? What if the way to victory really is through defeat? What if the way to rule and authority really is through service? Jesus in the gospel tells us over and over again that when we are most confident in ourselves, is when we most think that we have it down, what if that is actually the most crucial point when we are at our most vulnerable? Why would that be? I love this passage in Philippians 4. One of the verses at least will stick out to you. Philippians 4, Paul says something very intriguing to me. It's my favorite little passage in Philippians there. He says this. He says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, get this, of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Lo and behold, that verse is not about cheerleading tryouts, interestingly enough. I was, come on. All right. The secret of facing plenty 
and want. The secret of facing uh, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, it's not that true spirituality means that you necessarily must give away everything you have. Jesus did tell a guy that, but Jesus didn't tell everybody that. Right? It's not that true spirituality means you must be miserable, you must be groveling, you must wear rags, you must have no money. That Nowhere does it say that. Paul says he, placed, he faced plenty and want, and he says he learned the secret to both, and the secret is that familiar verse, Philippians 4.13. It is he who gives me strength. But you see, it's in plenty... It's in plenty, it's on the mountaintop, it's at the top, when it is most often hardest for us to see our need. The secret was seeing, I always am in need and He gives me strength. But it's precisely when we think we have it all together that we're our weakest, because we never have it all together. I came across this uh, documentary called Korengal. It's a, it's a, actually a sequel to Restrepo, uh, Oscar-winning um, documentary. It's about uh, this outpost in Afghanistan called Restrepo uh, in the middle of the Korengal Valley. It's this outpost that you can only get to with a helicopter dropping you off to it. Um, nothing, and your supplies and everything only come to you as helicopters come and drop it off to you. Um, all these guys, they, they're, at the beginning of this, uh, the, the sequel here, Korengal, they're describing what it was like when they were there. And they're basically saying it was a hellhole. Okay, we, we couldn't even go out and find the enemy. We were pretty much placed there and said, wait till the enemy comes to you and then you can kill them. They didn't have plumbing, they didn't have air conditioning. It was nothing like a base or anything. It was just kind of a, a hole in the middle of this valley that they were supposed to hold down. And they're recounting the conditions there and they're recounting how it was actually like pretty absurd that we were even there because there was nothing we were going to be able to accomplish. And at the very beginning of the documentary, one of the guys, the, 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 um, the narrator says to him, do you miss anything about it? He says, I'd rather be there than here. I'd go back right now if it was still there. And you're sitting there, you're going, what does that mean? How could he say that? It's usually actually a pretty common thing with combat veterans, right? We hear all these these ads a lot about how we're supposed to treat veterans well. Combat veterans have a hard time reassimilating into American culture. Because it was when they were in combat, they had a mission, It was when they were in combat, they had a purpose. It was when they were in combat that they were in the fight. But when they come back home, they often struggle with the despair of purposelessness and emptiness and the comfortability of this life. David put himself in a position where all he had to care for or care about was himself and his own whims, and it destroyed him because that's what he followed. Kings were supposed to be out to battle defending their people. David is at home and ends up abusing a couple in his kingdom. David in the wilderness shows us great faith in God. David on his couch shows us only faith in himself. That's the setting here. Okay? That is the setup for the fall that we see. The second thing is this. The second thing is the spiral of sin. The spiral of sin and oh my how it spirals. How does all this happen? How does all of it happen? Well, if you read the story, it happens slowly and subtly because that's the way sin works. 
David didn't wake up that morning and say, how am I just going to royally screw up this awesome thing I've got going on? He didn't do that. Look at how suddenly and quickly it spirals. Just look through this with me. He's, He's lounging on his roof. He's just enjoying the day. He gets up to walk and lo and behold, there's a beautiful woman naked on a roof. Okay, but we're okay at this point. Okay, she's not there. She's over there, right? She's okay. It's the temptation is not the sin. Martin Luther used to say that the difference, which I love this, um, this analogy. I wish I came up with it myself. The difference between temptation and sin is the difference between a bird landing in your hair and you letting that bird make a nest there. I like that. I don't know if that helps you, but I like it. Um, To be tempted is not to sin. We are told that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Right? Here's the thing. The story could have stopped there. But it doesn't. So he inquires who this woman is. And what does he hear? This is Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Another man's wife. Okay? He's told explicitly. And not just any other man. He's Uriah's wife. Uriah, we're going to see in a couple of weeks, David's mighty men. David had a collection of men that were the most elite soldiers in his kingdom. And they were very, very, very personally loyal to him. This is the wife of one of David's most loyal and elite soldiers. And he knows that. Story could have stopped there. But it doesn't. So David sends for her. David takes her. David lays with her. She conceives. She's pregnant and so she sends him word of it. It's done. The deed is going to be known now, right? We must confess all and repent. The story could have stopped there. But it doesn't. So David sends for Uriah. He feigns interest. Did you like that, how Uriah gets there? He's like, hey, how's, how's it going? Are you okay? How's the battle? How's Joab? Yeah. He feigns interest in the goings-on of the battle. All the while, he's scheming to have Uriah go home and sleep with his wife and cover the trail. That doesn't work, so he gets him drunk. And at this point, we see that even drunk Uriah the Hittite, he's not even an Israelite, drunk Uriah the Hittite is more righteous than a sober man after God's own heart. David. Doesn't work. The story could have stopped there. But it doesn't. David sends Uriah back to Joab carrying his own death warrant. And the deed is done and Uriah falls. David once again feigns sympathy for his commander. Bathsheba mourns. He could have stopped there, but it doesn't. He then takes her as his wife. And so in the end, by the human point of view, David looks like the most noble one of the deal. He takes the fallen warrior's wife and gives her protection and a home, right? What are we going to take away from this? What are we going to take away from this avalanche of iniquity? That's, that's all it is. A few things I want to take away from it is this. The, over, the first thing is the overwhelming emphasis of the entire scene is that this is every 
bit David's heart and David's doing. Bathsheba's not in the wrong. Joab's not in the wrong. No one is in the wrong except David. David is the main actor of this story. David is the lustful adulterer. David is the deceptively gracious entertainer. David is the murderous schemer. David is the perpetrator of all the evil of this passage. There's no doubt about it. And that is what unsettles us. That's what makes us uneasy because that is more than we want to know about David because that's more than we want to know about our heroes. But here, this is what's more of it. That's more than we can bear to see in ourselves. Because you got to see this. David's struggle exposes all of our struggles. David's struggle exposes all of our struggles. And we say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm no saint, but I wouldn't dare, we start. But here's the thing. Neither would have David. He would not have dared either. What David shows us here is that the sinfulness of humanity is at the center of the human condition. Not even David can be the true king. He just cannot be. He shows us that the sinfulness of humanity is the center of the human condition. It's the center of all of our conditions And if you don't believe that, if that's not how you view the world, stories like this are just going to confuse you. Because you're not going to want to know what to do with it. But this story is not so far-fetched. David looked. David saw. David took. You hear the echoes of the Garden of Eden there, do you not? Eve and Adam saw. And they took. And they ate. It is a pattern that has repeated itself over And over and over again ever since. David shows us all of our condition. You have to flatly deny wide portions of every section of Scripture to deny that the Bible teaches us that the central problem of humanity is our own sinfulness. It clearly teaches it. But again, we think, yeah, but... And then it's actually Jesus himself who really dropped the hammer, is it not? Sermon on the Mount, most famous sermon ever preached. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, the moment you've looked at a woman lustfully with your heart, you've already done it. You've heard it said, do not murder. I say, if you hate your brother in your heart, you have already committed murder. Paul in Romans 1 gives this long exposition of what the ungodly, the unrighteous, the pagans, those people are like. And this is a list that he gets at the end of Romans chapter 1. Listen to this list. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, 
heartless, ruthless. You go through that list, and if you're paying attention, you realize that there is not one of us that can exempt ourselves from that list of the ungodly, of the unrighteous. And they all have one root problem, and it was verse 28, Romans 1.28. They did not see fit to acknowledge God, meaning they did not see fit to relate to God as who He is, God. That is the root problem. Look, this is a story of broken sexuality, but the fact is, is we're all broken sexually. The chaste, the most chaste among us in this room is broken sexually. We're all murderers in our hearts, every single one of us. It is Jeremiah, it's God through Jeremiah and Jeremiah uh, 17, 9 that said it, the heart is wicked above all things who can understand it. We are all on our best days worthy of nothing but the righteous wrath of God because of our sin. And the singular reason is that like David, we would be God unto ourselves. That's what happens here. So the question of this passage is not, will you or won't you? That is not the question of the passage. Because you will. The rest of the Bible tells you that. Because everyone else in the Bible did too. There are no pure heroes in the Bible. The Bible does not pretend that their heroes are pure. The question is, in this passage, will you recognize it? We recognize your sin. Will you confess it? Will you turn from it? Will you die to it? Or... Will you let it kill you? David did not wake up scheming how he could become the villain of the story. He did not desire that in the least bit. I love uh, the scene Harvey Dent in The Dark Knight Rises. Harvey Dent's having dinner with Bruce Wayne. uh, And Bruce Wayne's really just trying to gauge him. Are you really willing to die for this cause? And Harvey Dent looks at him with a smile on his face and he says this. You either die the hero... Or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. That's exactly what happened to him. By the end, by the end of this, look at the end of the story. David is so cold. We have seen David pour out his heart at the news of the death of his most ardent enemy, Saul. But he's cold and callous. David has seemingly lost himself, lost his soul, lost his heart, completely hardened by his own guilt. The spiral of sin. What in the world are you going to do with that? The last one here, the sight of sin. The sight of sin. Hone in on verse 27. If the whole story ended with the first half of 27... 27, you'd think David got away with it. He takes the fallen warrior's wife and puts her in the palace and she becomes queen, right? Um, He's now, he's the good guy. But we're quickly reminded at the end of verse 27, something that we learned in the very first story when David shows up, God does not see as man sees. Verse 27, my version The version you have there in your handout says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Hebrew literally reads, the thing that David did was evil in God's eyes. 
God saw all of it. We read something like the story of David's life and we come to a chapter like this and we ask ourselves, why in the world would you include this story? Why in the world would you include the story and all the fallout that follows after it? Because, and here it is, because like the rest of the entirety of Scripture, the story is not ultimately about David. The rest of Scripture, the story is ultimately about the one true God. It's about the one true holy God whose eyes cannot even look on evil, the prophet Habakkuk tells us. Who shows his steadfast love to thousands who, but who will by no means clear the guilty, he says in Exodus. The God who will in the end execute justice and righteousness in all that he has made. Meaning he will right every single wrong. That can either be the worst news to you or it can be actually the best news to you. How could it be good news? Because we're not just perpetrators, we're also victims, are we not? That this God will deal with sin. He will not let it slide. He will deal with it. Every wrong, every injustice will be dealt with in the end. This story reveals David's sin, but even more than that, what makes us uncomfortable, it reveals our sin. But the story is ultimately about God because God is the one we've sinned against. Sin is not sin if there is no God. Period. And you see David, as soon as he begins to wade deeper and deeper into this whole mess, he immediately keeps trying to cover himself, right? Uh, When I was little, I was infatuated with matches. And I got up early one morning and I pulled a chair up to the countertop. I had a glass. I thought I was being safe. I had a glass and I had matches. Y'all know what matches are, right? Um, Um, (laughs) uh, And I was just lighting them one by one, lighting them, blowing them out, putting them in the glass, lighting them, blowing out, putting them in the gas. And then I dumped them in the trash can. Um, And then I was cleaning the glass and I saw this glow on the wall and I turned around and the, uh, the garbage can was in flames. And so naturally I grabbed the newspaper and covered the lid. I was covering the fire. I was going to put it out, right? I did not know the lesson yet that paper was, um, a flammable product. Um, my parents learned, um, David felt that. Just like Adam and Eve, echoes of the garden again. As soon as Adam and Eve disobey God, as soon as Adam and Eve make the choice that they will be gods unto themselves, the first thing they feel is the shame of their nakedness. Why? Because they are exposed. They're exposed and they need covering. David feels that from the beginning. And instead of running to God, he keeps trying to cover and cover and cover and cover. And it gets worse and worse and worse. We do this too, whether it's with our sexual past. We feel this, this need to cover. Whether it's with our sexual past, whether it was wanton indiscretion or habitual indiscretion, whether it was just a stupid mistake, whether it was actually being a victim Right. 
whether it's my proclivity to abuse others with my sexuality, to be selfish with my sexuality, to use people to meet only my needs, to use relationships and everything that I'm given here at the university to build myself up and nothing else at all costs, whether it's my disdain for others, my jealousy of others, whether it's my hatred of myself, we all feel this need to cover And we're covering, and we're covering, and we're covering, and we're covering, and we feel more and more exposed as every day comes. Whatever it is, we're all trying to cover because we all know that we are exposed to a holy God. And nothing shows forth our unbelief more than our feeble attempts to cover ourselves. The more we hide our sin, the more we deny the gospel. Because it's the gospel. you got to see this. It's the gospel and only the gospel that tells you, you are covered. You're not just covered. You're covered by the blood of the Lamb. This is a hard passage, y'all. Dealing with brokenness. Dealing with broken sexuality. Dealing with homophobia. Dealing with hatred of races. Dealing with hatred of ethnicities. Dealing with these things that you see in your own heart and you know that they're there. It is hard and it is messy. And our instinct is to cover because we think if we let it out, it's going to kill us. But it's actually in your covering up of it over and over and over again. That's actually the thing that's killing you. But dealing with our brokenness, dealing with my brokenness, dealing with my sin, dealing with my shortcoming, dealing with my wickedness. When I try to deal with it, it feels like the death of me. But you see, that is where the beauty of the gospel starts to hit home. Because what the gospel helps us to see... More and more and more. It does. The gospel helps us see our sin. It actually helps us see our brokenness. Because the more we see those things, the more we see the beauty of his death. And when we see the beauty of his death, we actually see, I don't have to cover myself anymore. I can actually uncover myself before God. I can actually uncover myself before other people. I can actually freely and willingly confess my sin because it is covered. What would it be like to know that? Leave you with this. A guy named John Wayne Gacy Jr., one of the most creepy serial killers in the history of our country. Used to dress up as a clown, not to give you nightmares tonight. The man used to dress up as a clown and lure teenage boys back to his home. You can fill in the blanks. And he would murder them. And he would hide their bodies in the crawl space underneath his house. And it was when they finally figured out that he was the one behind these crimes, they went into his house and they found all of the bodies. Sufjan Stevens, I don't know if you listen to him, he has a song entitled John Wayne Gacy Jr., in which he chronicles the man, who he was, and what he did. And out of nowhere, out of left field, at the end of the song, you get this line. And in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets that I have hid.
and the song ends. What kind of worldview does that kind of statement make sense? I want you to answer that for yourself. What kind of worldview does that kind of statement make sense? If the story ends in 2 Samuel 11, there's no story that makes sense of that kind of worldview. The comfort I want to leave you with tonight, this is not the end of the story. It's not the end of your story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is heavy. This is heavy because we know that even one slight transgression makes us adulterers, murderers, coveters, idolaters, makes us those deserving nothing but your wrath. Father, we don't know how to deal with our brokenness. We don't know how to deal with our shame. We don't know how to deal with our guilt. Would you show us that the answer is not just to cover it and not just to forget it, but to see that it is covered, and to see that it is remembered no more by you, our maker, our lover, our God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.